good to be back in the house of the Lord with God's people, as it is every week. Uh, we, we have had over the, the weeks and months on occasion some hard uh, sermons, some things that are difficult to hear, and you know, there's, there's times where scripture is just harsh and convicts, and, and it cuts us deep, and there's things that we have to wrestle with and deal with. Uh, there's times that as, as people that are by nature in their hearts rebellious of God that we just have to come to terms with things that we don't want to, that, that sin kind of tells us, no, I want it my way. And so uh, every once in a while, you know, my goal is never to, to offend or have always have sermons be these difficult things to hear. But when the, when the counsel and the word of God is difficult, then that comes out in the sermon. Today is not one of those days, so we can all breathe easy. And just somebody, I swear I heard somebody go, <laughs> let it never be, let, let me never become known as a like fire and brimstone kind of preacher. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not the intent. We're just trying to keep it um, kind of, you know, what the, Lord, what, the, what the Lord says is what he says. And so this morning, though, is a word of encouragement to you. Hopefully you will walk out uplifted and enjoyed with, with what uh, God has to say to us this morning. But before we do, I want an honest moment. Uh, and this is one of those times where it's not a rhetorical question, it's an actual raise your hand. Uh, raise your hand if in the last maybe one, two, three years, you have felt uncertain or shaken in your faith. Raise your hand. If you have felt uncertain in your faith, if you had felt uncertain about the world around us and God's control of it, keep your hand up if that's the case. Right? If you have felt or wondered, what is God doing or what is, it, what is he up to? Yeah, and, and I won't make you, you know, do the look around thing um, or close your eyes and raise your hand thing because most of us have our hands raised. I think, I think it's worth asking. Like, we wonder sometimes how secure our faith is. I bet if you've ever asked questions like that, you, you tend in the Christian life and the Christian community to keep those questions tucked way deep down, right? We don't, we don't really condone asking hard questions or coming in here and, you know, what if an elder were to come in here and say, you know, I'm just not sure of my faith. I don't know if God really is in control like he says he is, or I don't really know if, you know, how do I know that God really has saved me? Imagine if, like, like, we would feel weird asking those kinds of questions out loud. There's something about the church that says, you can't say that. You know, all of us feel it, though, right? Like, at one point or another, we all have these questions. Like, be honest. Don't raise your hand. But in the last few years, there's been a point where you're like, man, am I really? Like, does God really have me? When I prayed that prayer when I was, like, 12 years old, you know, am I really saved? Like, when I get to those gates and I stand before God, is he really going to let me in? Like, there's no way he's actually going to let me. Right? Like, we think these things in the deep recesses of our mind, but we don't want to say it out loud because we don't want to somehow give the impression that we're crumbling or don't have it together. And so we're afraid of questions. One of my goals in, in youth ministry was always to have it be a space that is open to such questions. Because one of the things we know is, note that happens with especially teenagers is they go through these youth group ministry years and they have fun and they go on mission trips, but they're never, they never ask hard questions about their faith. They never probe and, and push back and, and fight the youth pastor or the pastor or the church leaders on these things and so then they get out into the world that does push back and fight back, and they have no answers or ground to stand on. That's a large reason why most people ditch their faith when they go to college. It's because they've never asked the hard questions, and all of a sudden the world asks all of them at once, and they go, ah, I guess it's not really true. Right? We are a people who should be asking questions. 
And so we, we, we do that. We waver quietly in our own homes and in our own minds, and we think the thoughts that we don't want anybody to hear to think that we think those thoughts, right? But in the midst of it, there's a scripture that tells us we're supposed to be these steadfast people of Christ, right? I think the truth paints a different picture. We doubt ourselves and God all the time. We say we don't. We believe that we don't. But man, we do. Because if we didn't doubt God ever, if we were perfect in this regard, church would look a whole lot different, wouldn't it? Like, our, our giving would never be a conversation, our attendance would never be a conversation, uh, the investments in the things of the kingdom that we do would never be a conversation. There, there'd be so much more radical mission and life on life and community and, and free giving and all these kinds of things if we really believed what we say we believe all the time with perfection. We don't. We just simply don't. We doubt ourselves and we doubt God a lot. And it makes sense that we do. If that's you... Let me make you feel the weight of guilt come off. It is okay, not only okay for you to have these doubts and questions and to be shaken at times, it's actually part of the normal life cycle of a Christian in the, in the world we live in under sin, right? And it makes sense internally because we all go through struggles, right? We all have things that cause us to wonder what God is up to. And it makes sense in a macro, big world kind of sense too, I was reading um, some commentaries today, and one of them quoted a guy named Thomas Cahill, who writes a lot about kind of old civilizations and culture. And he wrote this book called How the Irish Saved Civilizations. I don't know why it was called this specifically, but he's digging into the demise of the Roman Empire. So Thomas Cahill is talking about the demise of Rome, and he says, look, here's, here's the things that were happening or had happened slowly over time that all led ultimately to the demise of Rome. And it's a chilling quote, because when you read it, I want you to think about how many of these things are true today. The changing character of the native population brought about through unremarked pressures on porous borders. The creation of an increasingly unwieldy and rigid bureaucracy, whose own survival becomes its overriding goal. The despising of the military, the avoidance of its service by established families, uh, while its offices present unprecedented opportunity for marginal men to whom its ranks had once been closed. The lip service paid to values that are long dead. The pretense that we still are what we once were. The increasing concentration of the populace into richer and poorer by way of a corrupt tax system. The desperation that inevitably follows. The aggrandizement of the executive power at the expense of legislature ineffectual legislation promulgated with great showmanship, the moral vocation of the man at the top to maintain order at all costs while growing blind to the cruel dilemmas of the ordinary life. I read this and I go, wow, that describes our country. Holy moly. I don't care what your political leanings are. Like, that's just an accurate assessment of it, right? And so it's hard not to lose heart. It's hard to not be discouraged. It's hard not to wonder, where is God and what is he doing, both in my life and just in the world around us, right? These doubts are a normal thing. How is it? How could we possibly not be moved or questioning and shaken in our faith in God? Right. Yet our psalm this morning tells us something really contrary to that. In the very first line of the psalm that we're going to read this morning, it talks about the Christian being immovable. Or as Peterson puts it, it says Christians are rock solid. 
but I don't feel rock solid. What do I do with that? So how do we as Christians reconcile this? What do we do with the fear and the doubt that keeps creeping in? It doesn't seem to go away, and it's causing us to you feel guilt and even shame. Right? If you're honest with yourself, you have felt at times in your life kind of guilt and shame as a follower of Christ because of the doubts that you experience and the wavering that you do. Right? You found yourself veering away from the truth of God in some ways, or you found yourself wondering about the truth of God in some ways, and if it's actually the way it's supposed to be, and then you feel guilt. Because like, How could I be this way? I'm not a good Christian. Right. So let's begin by looking at this psalm this morning, and then we'll un- unpack it in some great detail, and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two about what it means as Christians to be immovable. Right. If we would stand for the word of God from Psalm 125 together. It says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Word of the Lord. You can be seated. By the way, good dear Presbyterians, you are getting really good at the rigid up and down. You've been really great at knowing exactly when to go up and when to go down. It's been wonderful. Uh, as your forgetful pastor doesn't tell you, it's great to just start praying and watch people just... Um, we've done it three times. It's tradition now. If we ever change it, people will be in uproar. Right? Remember the first few weeks of the Psalms, we dealt with a whole bunch of things. We dealt with who we turn to when we're looking for help, right? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 123, last week, we examined this idea of being servants of God and what it means to literally be under the the servitude of God versus sin, right? We're all slaves. We're going to be slaves to one thing or another. Is it going to be the world and sin or is it going to be the Lord, our maker? And then we didn't cover this Psalm, but I wrote about it in the FYI. If you read that, everyone in a while, they are worth reading. Um, Psalm 124, we ask this, this singular question of what if, right? And explores what if God hadn't been on our side or wasn't still on our side? What if God hadn't stepped in and saved the Israelites, God's people? What if he hadn't been there or hadn't cared or hadn't loved, right? What would it be like? And so it's a sobering reminder and it's worth going back and reading. Don't skip over that one. Right? But it kind of goes along with, with three and, and this idea that there really is no other option than being servants of God as, as people who know who he is. Right? And so 125 now, this week, it pivots to the reality of what life under God as servants actually is, brings, and means. Right? It's a defining type of psalm. It's not a, a psalm of get up and do this, but it's a psalm of let me just tell you a little bit about who you are as servants of God. Right? You've You've looked for him, you have found him, you have turned to him, you've asked what would life be like without him, now let's ask what would life be like with him. You see the progression of the Psalms of Ascent as they move their way up the mountain to Jerusalem. And I don't know about you, but based on the fears and doubts that I experience, this Psalm is hard because I don't feel like a rock all the time. I don't. What does it say? 
Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. I don't know about you, I feel pretty movable a lot of the times. I remember just a year or so ago, uh, we, you know, we were going through some, some testing with Graham, and we thought he was going to have this super rare cancer that was incurable. And I remember, you know, Paul, our transitional pastor, was stealer. I remember being in tears with, with the staff in prayer that it wouldn't be that cancer that we, in my head I was convinced it is. Right? And it turned out to be nothing a few weeks later. But I tell you, I wasn't sitting there going, I'm immovable. <laughs> Because my son's life was at stake. I was very movable in that moment, right? We don't find ourselves feeling this way all the time. And so how are we to understand this psalm about God's people, about us, in light of our fears and our questions and our doubts? Well, let's, let's pick it apart. Uh, the key to, to this whole thing, I think, is in the first two verses, right? How are the people of God like Mount Zion exactly? It says, the people of God are like Mount Zion. How so? They are not movable. It says they can't be moved. But you have to look at the exact comparison that's made. Why is it that Mount Zion, which by the way, if you don't know, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, same thing. We're talking about the city of Jerusalem. Why is the city immovable? Why can't it be conquered, claimed, whatever? Why is it immovable? It's because it's surrounded by this mountain range. Right? There are hill, it's the city on a hill, and so from every side of Jerusalem, if you were to look at it geographically, it's virtually impossible. You have to come up the mountain to be able to take the city. And so this mountain, and not only it, but also the various hills and other mountains around it, surround the city as this hedge of protection, which prevent anything from getting to it. Why is Jerusalem immovable? It's not because it is so wonderful, or the people are so brave, or the army is so strong, or the weapons are so well made, it's because it's surrounded by this mountain. Right? It was brilliantly located strategically. It's hard, massive, natural mountain ranges made it immensely fortified. And the real answer comes in verse 2. Because just like Zion's mountains, so the Lord surrounds his people. Right? The thing that makes us immovable is not us but God himself, right? In this psalm, we aren't the mountain. God is the mountain. We aren't the immovable force. God is the immovable force. It says the people of God are like Zion in that there is a massive mountain that surrounds them, and just like that mountain surrounds Zion, so God surrounds his people, And so all this language of unshaken, unmoved, impenetrable, it's the Lord's description, not ours. And we get to benefit from it because he is the one who surrounds us. And so scripture is not saying you are to be and act intrinsically within yourselves unshaken, unmoved, never questioning, never doubting, never wrestling, never being scared, never wondering or worrying about what God is going to do. That's not who you are supposed to or called to or commanded to be. It is God who is the immovable one, and he surrounds you. It's God himself. Another thing is that we have to understand that this, this word placement that we have. It says that those who trust in the Lord 
are like Mount Zion. Here's something really important, and it's not just for this psalm, but for all of Christian life. It doesn't say that the people that are surrounded by the Lord feel like Mount Zion. It says they are like Mount Zion. Here's the harsh truth, the good truth. You are, because God surrounds you as followers of Christ, you are rock solid and immovable. And if you don't feel that way, one, that's okay, and two, it doesn't matter how you feel, right? It's what you are. God says you are, as Christians, immovable. He has you, he surrounds you, he protects you, he cares for you, he upholds you, he carries you through, and if you feel like he's not there carrying you through, it doesn't really matter because he's still there. I've mentioned this some time before, but there used to be, there was these bumper stickers that were really big like 10, 15 years ago that seemed to be on all the cars. It was like, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. And I was, th those are dumb stickers. It should just say, God says it, that settles it. I don't care what you believe. You believing what God says doesn't make it any more true or false. It doesn't lend credibility. God doesn't need your credibility. Right? God says something about you and you can believe all you want. It's true. Because he says it. And he proclaims over you that you are immovable and rock solid if you are a person under the Lord. As a servant of Christ, you belong to him. He has you. He upholds you. He will not let you waver. He will not let you stumble. He will not let you fall. There's times where... Um, I ask Britta if she's mad at me in our house. You know, she'll just seem miffed about something and in a mood, and maybe I'll come in and I'll say hi, and the way that she says hi back is just kind of flippant or dismissive or whatever. And I'll, you know, I'll think, man, what did I do wrong? I must have done something wrong. Right? And there's plenty of times where, like, yeah, I, I did something wrong, and I'll find out. Um, usually not right then, but, like, you know, four hours later. Um, but more often than not, it's not actually anything that I did. There's a whole host of reasons for the, for the reaction that she gives, and they're all valid reasons. You know, that could be a, a really stressful thing that happened at work. Maybe I come home at 5 o'clock on a Monday when it's her day off and I'm here, and she's been with both kids all day, and, and by the time I walk in the door, those kids have been nightmares for like nine hours straight, and she's just, one of them is going to die if I don't take over. Right? And so it has nothing to do with me or anything that I did. Right? Maybe she's not feeling good. The point is, there is a whole host of reasons for the reaction that I'm getting from her that are valid reasons, but I, in my head, go, oh, she must be mad at me. When it's not true. The way we feel about the world so often is misleading and wrong and false. And so when, when the world spins out of control and when things go the way that we don't want them to go, we have this tendency to think that God is not at work or that we aren't rock solid and we start to question and we start to doubt, but it doesn't make it any less true that God proclaims over you, you are immovable. It's just the way it is, right? And so to summarize, God is the one that's immovable, not ourselves or our faith, and what we are and what we feel are entirely different things, right? So let's keep going. Verse 3 acknowledges the reality of kind of this current life, right? The scepter of wickedness shall not rest. It's present, 
but it can't stay forever. And so the Lord promises us in this psalm, as the psalmist writes, yeah, the, the scepter of wickedness, man, it's resting on us right now, isn't it? It kind of feels like it. But it can't rest there ultimately. It can't stay there. The Lord won't allow his people to suffer indefinitely. Right? It's a foreshadowing to the future and what will come eventually when Christ returns. And so he's saying this wickedness, whatever it is you're experiencing, personal or corporate or as a country or as a world, it's, it's got a temporary life to it. It's not going to go on forever, right? It just isn't. And the psalmist ends at the very end with four and five with this prayer to do good to, the, to those who are good and to cast out those who are evil. And then he pronounces peace upon Israel. And that little line at the end, peace be on Israel, we, we, we tend to dismiss that, but it's a proclamation of truth. He's saying, so because this is who God is and how immovable he is and what he does, when I pray, do good to those who are good and cast out those who are evil, the Lord's going to do that. So peace be on Israel. It's th that last part's not part of the request, right? It's an acknowledgement of what God is and who he is and what he will do one day. Peace will be upon Israel. Okay. And so how do, we, how do we unpack all this? How do we deal with our doubts and our fears? There's two kind of angles that we take when we look at this. The first is the theological angle. We look at Scripture as a whole, and we look at the theological ways that God has us, right? How does Scripture speak to God as our mountain and our fortress? And what are the, the theological concepts that are helpful for us here? But then the second part is experiential, right? How does Scripture help us when we don't feel like Psalm 125 describes us to be on a practical level, right? And so regardless of how your mind kind of predominantly works, Scripture has some things to say. So let's unpack these, starting with theology. In theological idea, the most helpful one to us here is this idea, this doctrine of predestination, of election. Right? It's, in short, it says that God chooses whom he saves. He chooses it based on no merit of the person. God didn't pick to save you or choose to save you and not your neighbor, because you are a better person than your neighbor is. Because you are more righteous, or have a higher potential energy for righteousness than your neighbor does. That's not why you're picked. That's not why you were chosen to be saved by God, and to be brought in under the family of Christ. You were chosen for, <laughs> I don't know why. I don't mean that in a negative way. Like, you are so terrible, I don't know why you were. Right? We just don't know. If you want to answer the question, why did God choose to save me, good luck. There is nothing intrinsic to you that says, this is why God picked me. Right? To us, the choice of whom God saves and who he doesn't looks entirely arbitrary. Now, it isn't because God's not an arbitrary God, but to us, it is. We don't know why God chooses to save whom he saves, but we know that he does. Right? And people struggle with this because they feel like, like, what do you ask people? How did you come to Christ? Right? We feel like we came to Christ. He was over here, and in our youth, we were over here, and then we turned and we walked this way, and we went, ah, and we found him. And then I prayed the prayer when I was, you know, in camp in eighth grade. And now I'm a follower of Christ. I followed him. I came to know him. That's the language we use, but you if you believe God's word, are so stained by sin and its tendencies and its behaviors 
and its ways of thinking about the world, that you actually can't even choose to follow God unless he comes to you and enables you first. If you think that you chose to follow the Lord at some point in your life, whenever that was, whether it was two weeks ago or when you were a little kid, guess what? He came to you first. He chose you. He called you to himself. Right? We call that unconditional election. And your response to it was, by the way, totally involuntary. Because when God calls you, we call this irresistible grace, you can't actually resist. And so the fact that you are even a Christian uh, by itself has nothing to do with you and your merit and how star-spangled awesome you are. It's because he came and chose you and he is so irresistible, you never had a chance to say no. Right? You were never going to reject him when he came to you. Because once the Lord reveals himself for who he is, the only natural response is, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Right? And so because of this, because of this, your salvation is entirely the work of God. It's, it's God's work. You didn't choose anything. Might seem like it to you, but God from the very beginning has you under his hand. He has grabbed you, he has pulled you in, and you were not able to resist. And this is really freeing because you're the rock even when you don't feel like it because he is the rock. My remote stopped working. So if someone could move to the next one for me. I don't know why it just failed, but it did. <sighs> there we go. But here, there's one more thing. One more thing that I think is important. Oh, now it's working again. Um, we, we have a question that as Christians we don't like to talk about. And it's a big one. What about losing my salvation? Isn't it, isn't it possible that we could lose our salvation? Right? What, what if we just walk away from God? What if today I walked out of the church and I said, be done with you, uh, no more, I'm gone. Right? Like, I, I certainly could lose my salvation. Right? Like, how, how is it not possible that I could lose my salvation? I know people who have left the church and they're long gone. Right? What, what do we do with that? How can I be certain? Right? This is actually the, 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 the question that people, as Calvin was a pastor, were asking. They were terrified at the idea of losing the salvation they had. And so this whole doctrine of election, pre, predestination, and all these things, uh, Calvin expounded on them because he wanted people to be sure of the faith that they had. <laughs> he wanted assurance of salvation. He didn't want to start a controversial movement that would divide churches. He was trying to explain to people, look, when you feel uncertain, it's not about who you are, it's about who God is. Right? Predestination destroys the idea of losing your salvation. Peterson actually offers really helpful words on this. I don't, I don't think he's trying in what we're going to look at in a second to talk about predestination, but you know, Peterson's gift in writing, uh, as you know, he wrote the paraphrase of the Bible, the message, right? the Bible in contemporary and plain language. One of his gifts is taking like, abstract, difficult things and just putting them in words that like, the guy on the street could understand. Right? And so he says this in A Long Obedience. If it's possible to defect... How do I know that I won't? Or even worse, that I haven't? How do I know that I have not already lost faith? Especially during times when I'm depressed, 
or have one calamity after another piled on me. Such an insinuated insecurities, they need to be confronted directly and plainly. It is not possible to drift unconsciously from faith to perdition. We wander like lost sheep, true, but God is a faithful shepherd who pursues us relentlessly. We might have our ups and downs, zealously believing one day and gloomily doubting the next, but he is faithful. And here's the key. We break our promises, but he does not break his. We break our promises, but he does not break his. You may wander away. You may throw your hands up and say, I'm done with you, God. But guess what? He pursued you, and he found you once, and he'll do it again. The Lord is good and steadfast. When we are movable and shakable and malleable and able to be persuaded to do things that we shouldn't do, to walk away, the Lord is the one who leaves the 99 to go after the one, and he will pursue you just like he pursued that one lost sheep. As the parable tells us, so it will be. And so theologically, you are solidified in your faith because God is the one who holds it, right? When I walk in the parking lot and I'm holding Graham's hand, right, and there's cars whizzing all around, do you think if he lets go of my hand that he's, like, free to run? <laughs> right, I know what I'm doing. I've got my hand so tight, he could let go, he could run, he could start whacking my hand, he could be kicking me. I'll, I'll pick him up like this and I'll carry him out of traffic if I have to. I don't care what direction Graham's running in, he's not going to run into the cars because he can let go of me all he wants, I've got him. Your father holds you with a strength that you can't even imagine and you can let go all you want. If you are his, you're his. Right. And so what do we do with those people who have walked away? and never returned, right? We question theologically what we do. This is a hard truth. But we question whether or not they were truly part of God's kingdom to begin with, right? One of the things we're, we're sadly seeing in the culture around us, you know, churches are shrinking. You might have heard that. You might have seen it, right? Uh, the churches are shrinking all over the world. Um, and as people are getting together to talk about it and debate it, one of the things they're noticing is that the church isn't so much shrinking but showing its true colors. What we're seeing is, is a people that were part of a cultural Christianity when it was the norm of the culture to be a church person. Right? There was a time in our country where you were a weirdo if you didn't go to church on Sunday. Right? And so you have these people that went to church that, that didn't really buy it. They weren't drinking the Kool-Aid. They were just there, filling seats, singing songs like a country club. When it became culturally inexpedient to be there, they're leaving. Right? And so, yeah, is God's church losing butts and seats? Sure. But, but I would argue that what's happening in the church and in the world is that it's not shrinking, but it's consolidating and reforming and fortifying. What we're starting to learn is who are those who are truly given to the mission and the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's more and more true. Right? It's funny, as I, as I see the churches uh, shrink and, 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 and that I know that I'm friends with here, wherever it is, you know, one of the common threads is that, man, like, more and more the percentage of people who are around are just solid. Because we're learning, right? 
It's like when you go through a crisis, you learn who your real friends are. We're doing that today. Right? So theologically, the Lord has you. You are predestined to be with him and saved by him, and he is the one who holds your salvation. It's not your faith act, your good works that are doing or accomplishing anything. He's got you. You can be rock solid because of who God is, not because of who you are. Okay. Experientially, if you want to know, if you still feel insecure after talking about predestination, and I generally feel insecure after I talk about predestination, because it's a hard theological concept and it just makes my head hurt sometimes. But if you still feel that way, the case that is the most helpful to you is really the entire Israelite history. If you want to talk experientially, how do we understand God to be immovable within our own doubts and fears, all you have to do is look anywhere in Scripture in any snapshot of the life of the Israelite people. Because what is their, their faith life in Scripture like? It is like this. Right? Up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. They are after God. They are willing to go anywhere with him. They're following Moses through the Red Sea and then they give up because there's no food. And then they are camping and they love the Lord and they're ready to be led into the promised land and then Moses disappears for a couple hours and they make a gold cow statue and bow and worship it because they doubt because Moses is late. They get to the very edge of the promised land and they send people into it and they say, look, here's the land that God has given you. It is flowing with milk and honey. And they go, what? There's big guys in there. I don't think we could take it. Did you forget the God that parted the sea? You don't think he can give these people? I don't think we should go. I don't think God's going to help us with that with them. They're, they're really big. Right? You see the ebb and the flow of God's people over and over and over again, they question, are shaken, are doubters, and make choices that go against what God wants from them because they don't believe that God is who he says he is. But here's what's true and never changing. In the midst of all of Israelite history, God never ceases to be their God, and they never cease to be God's people. Even when he punishes them, he exiles them under the Assyrians and the Babylonians. He literally kicks them out of the Jerusalem that he said was impenetrable. He allows it to be impenetrated so that they can be kicked out as punishments and live in exile amongst those two kingdoms. But even in the midst of that, God is still their God and they are still his people. <clears throat> no matter how bad they get, no matter how much they falter, no matter how much they doubt, no matter how much they wrestle, no matter how far they walk away, the Lord always pulls them back in. If you think you're a doubting Thomas and a worrywart of the faith, you don't stand a chance against the Israelites throughout their history. Unless you perhaps maybe have forged a golden cow in your backyard and you're not telling us about it. In which case, number one, shame on you. Number two, come talk to me. Number three, please send me pictures. I'd love to see it. All right. And then let's melt it down and donate it up here so that we can like, buy a building you know, twice the size and reach out to the community. Right? We are a people that are marked by being gods regardless of how much we've fallen away. But if, if the Old Testament isn't the great example to you, maybe let's look at something in the New. And, and let's look at the life of Peter. I think Peter's life is an even better example. Um, Peter is the king of up and downs when it comes to being a disciple. 
Right? Peter's the one that says, I want to get out of the boat and walk on the, on the water too. And then he walks, and then he looks down, and then he drowns. And he says, I will never forsake you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Right? And what happens? He denies him. Right? I, I will do everything you ask of me. And then the people come to take Jesus, and Peter slices off a guard's ear, and, Peter, and Jesus goes, no, what are you doing? And he takes the ear and he puts it back on. He goes, stop. Right? Peter is up, down, up, down, up, down. He is either on fire for God or totally terrified and walks away. Right? But Peter has this said to him before, the, before the, the ministry of Jesus comes to a close, right? They're with them, and they're talking about who do the people say I am about Jesus, and he said to them, but what do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And Simon replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus answered him, and he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Look at verse 18 again. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's two major ways that we've interpreted this passage. Uh, the first is what we call the Catholic way. If you're wondering, why do Catholics have a pope? Here it is. Peter is the rock. This is the argument used for the papacy. There's more, but this is really the, the crux of it. Peter was the first pope. Because God said, you are the rock, and I will build my church upon you. This is where it all starts, Peter. You're the first leader. Right? And so ever since then, we've elected popes in this world, if you're Catholic, to serve as the head of the church on this earth. Right? After the order of Peter. We don't believe that that's what it says. We believe that second, the second one is Peter's faith is the rock. Right? His action of belief is what it's built on. So Peter, you are the rock. And all, you know, your faith, what you've just said about me, the fact that you've proclaimed me as Christ, that the Father has revealed this to you, that, that is the rock. And on this rock we build the church. On the faith of the people we will build the church. Right? That's the second way. But there's a third and I think a better way. And we have to get into some nitty gritty on this. Um, in the Greek language, the word and here, and on this rock, is the word kai. K-I, well, not K-I-E, but, you know, kai, as you would read it, K-I, K-A-I. Um, it means and. It's a conjunction type of word, but it doesn't just mean and in the Greek language. It has a whole host of different meanings, depending on where it is in Scripture. It can mean things like even, also, if, for, therefore, and for our sake today, it can mean but. Not your but, but but. Right? It can mean but. And the way that we have translated Greek is as scholars have looked at it and tried to, through context, figure out what the conjunction is trying to convey. And most of the time, whether a phrase is saying and or but or if or therefore is pretty obvious. In this case, it's not that obvious. And so um, James Montgomery Boyce actually argues for this third way, and he, he, he puts it this way. Uh, in, in 1 Peter 2, Peter is actually talking about Christ as the rock, as the, as the stone, the way it's translated in that. 
And he says, the stone has become, the stone the builders rejected, the Jesus who the people have crucified, has become the capstone. Right? And so when you look at, you know, Peter was told this, on this rock I will build my church in the Gospels. And then we have to look at how does Peter talk about the rock later on in life. And Peter seems to be very clear that the rock is Christ. Right? Christ whom was rejected has become the cornerstone, the capstone, the thing that the church and everything else is built upon. He never calls himself the rock. You would think if he had been given such an awesome title by Jesus, I don't know about you, if Jesus came to me and said, Vince, you're the rock. Whole church building on you. I probably would mention that a bunch of times, like in passing, right? If God gave me that cool of a title, you better believe on my business card, Vince Latz, rock. Right? Peter never calls himself that. Anytime Peter talks about the rock, the stone, it's always in terms of Christ. And so here's how most likely this passage should be translated accurately. You are Peter, which by the way, his name literally means little stone. You are the little stone, but on this rock, Jesus Christ, I will build my church. And so this, this passage, this interaction that Jesus has with Peter is an echo, a perfect echo of Psalm 125. In both instances, it's not Peter or the people or us that are the rock in, in the story. It's, it's God or Christ himself. Peter, your confession is exactly what I wanted to hear. Way to go. The Lord enabled you to understand that. And you are Peter. You're a great little rock. But this is the rock I'm going to build my church on. And then it says, the gates of hell cannot even prevail against it. Right? And so the psalmist explains to us, we, we can experience through the life of Peter, through the life of, of the Israelites, this understanding that as they continue to fall away and fail and ebb and flow and they're hot and they're cold, Christ remains who he says he is. And God the Father remains who he says he is. The key here is that whatever they are experiencing, you're in good company and you can join the experience and understand that God, just like he continued to uphold them, will continue to uphold you. He doesn't falter and he doesn't fail. And so what do we learn? whether it's theological study or experimental things, here's what we understand. You bear a responsibility. You are called by God to work out your, your doubt, right? Philippians 2.12 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You are called. You can't just leave your doubt there and say, whatever, Vince said it's okay that I doubt. I'm just going to keep going and not care because God's going to have me in the palm of his hand. You actually have to wrestle with your doubt. Right? You have to think about what your doubt means. You have to think about why it is that you question the Lord. You have to, you have to kind of worry about the fact that you have doubts and questions and things. But you don't have to do it under the weight of guilt and fear and shame because it's part of the Christian life and God has you. And so you actually are freed by the rock, Jesus Christ, 
to work out your salvation, the details of it, the doubts of it, the questions of it, the wrestling of it, with fear and trembling, without the, the guilt, the shame. You don't have to wonder whether or not you're good enough of a Christian because God's answer is you're not. That's why I'm the rock and you're the little stone. Right? And so you can go and you can take your doubts and you cannot anymore allow the anxiety of them to riddle you and to shake you and to bring you down. You can study scripture. You can spend time with the Lord in prayer. You can get into community and engage in God's word together and be encouraged by other people. You can learn from those who are older than you and have walked with Christ for a very long time. And you can sit under people who had the same doubts as you once and ask them, how did you get through it? And have them answer you and work together. You can continue to grow more and more into Christian maturity. And you can do it all without feeling so gosh darn guilty all the time. Because when you have questions and when you doubt and when you think that God isn't around, he's not telling you that you're a terrible Christian for feeling the way. He's saying, you know what? I'm here. Go work it out. And come back to me. I'm waiting. I'm right here. With open arms. And as a matter of fact, if you get too far, I'll pull you back in. So have the freedom to explore your faith, to understand more and more, to go more deeply to wrestle with the doubts that you have. My encouragement to you would be that you do that. Peterson puts it this way. Living as a Christian is not walking a tightrope without a safety net above the breathless crowd, many of whom would like nothing better than the morbid thrill of seeing you fall. Man, it feels like that way, doesn't it? Instead, it is sitting secure in a fortress. Your Christian life, your faith, is not a walk on a tightrope. You are securely locked in a fortress that cannot be shaken cannot be moved. Sit in it, get comfortable, and begin to wrestle with the things that are hard to understand, with the things that cause you to worry or doubt or question or waver. Think through them, pray through them, ask the Lord to work those things out, ask the Holy Spirit to inhabit you to process things with a wisdom that you could never have on your own. My prayer this morning is that you would leave this place knowing just how deeply loved cared for, protected you are in the name of your Father and in the arms of your Father. And it would start with that as you seek to grow in your own faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you hold us as the rock of our salvation so that we don't have to worry about it. Lord, many of us have had fears and doubts and questions We wonder if you're there. We wonder if you're working. We wonder if we measure up, if we're good enough, smart enough, clean enough. Or too often we feel like we're maybe too dirty to come to you, too much of a mess. We don't have our stuff together. But Lord, you tell us that it's different. You tell us that when we waver and falter and question, You're at work. That's when you roll up your sleeves because you are the immovable fortress in which we get to live as the people of God. Lord, we pray that that reality would permeate every moment of our thinking, that we would leave this place encouraged and cared for in the the deep, abiding, loving arms of our Father. Thank you for your word of encouragement of Psalm 125. 
Matthew 16, and the whole breadth of Scripture which describes the people faltering and failing, and you're upholding them throughout all time, in all places, for all peoples. We love you and praise you. And all his people said, Amen. Amen.